weekend uh, to use language that is Piperian, if I might use that uh, phrase, the Godward life. What is it about a life that makes it a Godward life? The direction of our life is toward the Lord in all things. That is the grand theme of our time together this weekend. What does the Godward life look like and feel like, as it were? Turn with me to Philippians chapter uh, 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12. I'll stop in the 23rd verse. This is the book that I've had the privilege of preaching on for the better part of eight months now. And uh, it has become a home to me. It has become a place that has been a great delight to my own soul and to our people. And uh, I want to focus on the 21st verse for us tonight. But let's get the context. Philippians 1 verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is in a Roman prison. Now by prison, we don't mean a dank cell somewhere. He is in a, uh, under house arrest. He has his own quarters. He is able to be taken care of by those from the Macedonian churches who have sent their gifts. And he says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of the Lord more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Pray with me. Father, this side of, of heaven, we will always see through a glass dimly. And therefore, we will have a lesser view of the majesty of what our death will mean. But even tonight, Father, we pray that a better view of our death and a more right view of our living would be given to us tonight by your word and by your spirit. 
And we would ask for this in the great and the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a true story brought to a newspaper called the Charlotte Christian News, printed some years ago by a man named Warren Smith. I'm going to tell the story from the author's point of view. The author was taking classes at the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. The author got to know a young man named Charles Murray, who was a student with the author of this article. And and Charles had been an Olympic athlete. He was trying out for the uh, Olympiad. And so he had uh, privileges at the uh, pool at the university. He was a high diver. And this uh, author and Charles got to know one another, and she began to share the gospel with him regularly. He had not been raised in church. He had really no sense of the gospel, either for his own life, nor for any view of the world that made sense to him. She would often uh, speak to him of the glories of Christ and of redemption, and his countenance would regularly begin to fall, and he would begin to drift away the more she spoke of Christ. In the days that followed, he practiced his diving. They got together for coffee. She would take him to the New Testament and she would share passages of scripture. And then a season came in which Charles began to pull himself away from this female friend of his. One night, he called her with trouble in his voice and he said, would you refresh my memory of those scripture verses that that you had given to me? And so she gladly reminded him of where to find those scriptures that she had spoken of. She didn't know where he was or what was going on in his life. She simply knew that she needed to pray, and so she did. Well, Charles had gone to the university pool at night. He had privileges to go whenever he wanted to. And so he went to the pool at 11 o'clock at night to the diving pool to the high platform 10 meters off the ground. He was training for the Olympiad. He was practicing his dives. The ceiling of the dive house had glass windows in it, and the moon was bright that night. And Charles climbed the the long ladder to get up to the top, and he began to go out to the edge of the board, and he turned around to set himself for his first dive. And the moonlight, when his arms were stretched out as he was bouncing on his toes preparing for his dive, formed the shadow of the cross on the wall in front of him. And the scriptures that he had been reminded of within the hour and seeing the shadow of the cross broke him. And he got down on that platform and gave his life to Christ. Right at the end of his prayer, the lights in the dive house flipped on. You see, he practiced regularly his dives in the dark because divers want to see where the water is, but they can't see very much depending upon their dive. And when the lights of the house flipped on and he looked down, he noticed that the pool had been drained of its water. You see, the university pool had been closed for repairs and no one told him. And he'd almost plummeted to his death but for the cross. But for the truth of the word of God. But for the life, death, and life again of Christ Jesus. 
Charles Murray came not only to faith, but his life was quite literally saved that very evening by virtue of the majesty of the cross. Now tonight our text is Philippians 1.21. Look at it again with me. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you had asked Charles Murray that very night as he was sitting at the edge of that platform, what's changed for you? He would tell you, I now know that to me is Christ, to live is Christ. What is Christianity in its depths, stripped of all but its core? Well, we know that you would pass the test tonight. The center, the core, the root of Christianity is that the living God delights to be known. But do you believe that tonight? delights to be known by people like you and like me. Look within your own heart tonight as you come here. Look at your words, your language, the images of your heart, the things you've said and done, and the things you've left unsaid and undone this week. The more honestly and the more deeply you look into your heart, the more we doubt that it could be true that the living God delights to be known by people like us. Passionately known. John Stott, the late Anglican minister of the gospel, said the person and work of Christ are the foundation rock upon which Christianity is built. Take Christ from it and you disembowel Christianity and there is nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity and all else is circumference. That's a brilliant statement. Christ is the essence of Christianity and everything else might be said to be circumference. Well, before we look at Paul's divinely inspired radical declaration of of what it means to live I want to ask briefly, what does Christianity not mean? Christianity is often mistakably viewed as principally about those things which John Stott calls circumference. When the world looks at Christianity, one of the things that the world looks at is the world looks at you and the world looks at me. And because they see how broken and busted we are, they wrongly conclude that Christianity is as broken and busted as the believers are. But we are a redeemed and fallen people. And so people miss the Redeemer because they look to the followers. Sometimes the world looks at the organized church and because she's an imperfect bride, they conclude that the bridegroom is unworthy because the bride is not spotless. Sometimes people will look at the ordinances of the church. They'll think about ceremonies and traditions and practices and baptisms and marriages and funerals. But these too are circumference. Or sometimes they will look at our creeds. The center, Paul says, is the living God wonderfully revealing himself in Christ. Wanting to be known in such a fashion that Paul can quite literally say... Listen carefully. To me, 
to live Christ. There is no verb in the sentence. It has to be supplied. When you look in the original language, Paul does this for emphasis. To me, to live Christ. To me, death gain. Paul leaves out the verb so that our mind will be engaged, so that we'll have to think when we supply that verb. To me, to live simply Christ. Can you say that tonight? This is arguably the most concise and full declaration of what Christianity means ever spoken. It is a complete worldview. It's a description of the earnest believer's mind and heart about the way we're going to live. So if to live is Christ, then nothing, absolutely nothing, is to be left apart from Christ's presence and his redeeming power. We're to connect everything to his presence. So think of your life with me, your imagination. How many things do we dream about via our imagination that we might want others to see whether or not they're connected to Christ? Our imagination, our intellect, our bodies, the use of them, our emotions, our gifts, our sexuality, our singleness, our vocation, our avocations, our successes and our failures, our cancer our disabilities. Every one of these things and a host of others is to be seen through the lens of the presence and the power of Christ. But how willing we are to replace so often Christ as the center with some idol that we are pursuing. Let me try and get at it this way. Let's Let's reword Paul's truth and watch how the eternal significance is, is wiped away. For me to live is. Now you supply anything you want in the blank. And if it is not Christ, it becomes lost, doesn't it? For me to live is to gain resources and money. Well, death is loss, isn't it? For me to live is my spouse. Death is loss. There's some of our older generation here tonight, and I'm delighted that you're here. One of the things I've seen in pastoral ministry over the last 28 years is that I find much to my discouragement that when someone passes away who's been married for 50 or 60 or 64, 65 years. There's something to be said about a spouse wanting to go on to heaven to be reunited with their loved one who has died. But sometimes, dear ones, there's never any conversation about Christ, only about being restored to their earthly mate. What does that say? It may say that for us to live has not really been about Christ, but have been a, about a mate. 
For me to live is recognition. Well, to die is to quickly be forgotten. If for you to live is power and influence, then to die is to lose them. If for you to live is possessions, to die is to depart with nothing in your hands. Bob mentioned that my father's had a stroke of late and one of the great ironies of the Lord's providence to us is that the week he had the stroke, we were moving him out of the home in which I grew up in, a home that we'd been in for 46 years. And my sister and I and my dad would joke about the fact as we were going through all the belongings in the house that, you know, really when we had gone through everything, a few mementos here and there and a few things that reminded us so powerfully of my mother who's with the Lord and our picture albums. And then we joked about pushing everything off the porch of the back of the house and having a bonfire. Because so much of it means, listen, so little. When money is our objective, we fear losing it. We become paranoid. When being noticed is our aim, we become competitive and argumentative and we must have our way. When power and influence drive us, we become self-serving and we become strong-willed and we refuse to lose lest someone else have the power. And when possessions become our idol, we get to the point where when Mr. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough, he replied, just another dollar more. You see, everything that is not Christ, towards which we are directing our living, eventually produces loss. It produces heartache. But if with Paul increasingly my life is Christ... There is increasing joy and increasing gain. A.W. Tozer was a pastor in Chicago in the mid-1950s. He was widely regarded as one of the great pulpiteers of our land in that day. A.W. Tozer said this, What we must have today are a people who live now as they would live if they knew that tomorrow was their last day. What we must have now are people who will live as if we knew that tomorrow was our last day. I have every confidence that if you knew that Christ was returning tomorrow or that God had given you an indisputable sign that your life would end tomorrow, that pretty much everything in your life would change in the next 24 hours. Why not now? You remember Mary and Martha, sisters and siblings of, of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. When, when Jesus was in the home of, of Mary and Martha, it was Mary who sat at his feet while Martha served. Do you remember Jesus' words? After Martha's complaint, he said, Martha, Martha. Now, Jesus never repeated himself in that way unless he was trying to get our attention. And he was getting Martha's attention. 
Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better. But do you remember the words that Jesus closes that sentence with? And he says, and it will not be taken from her. The Lord Jesus Christ treasures when we so treasure him that we will let nothing get in the way. You see, this was true of our Lord. What was Christ's life? But the very living out of this phrase that Paul uses. Why can Paul say, for to me to live is Christ and death is gain? Because he had seen it in Christ. In the life of the Son of God, his life was always about, Father, for me to live is your good pleasure. And of course, the cross illustrates that death was gain for him. Christ's whole being was devoted to his Father, to communing with and delighting in and obeying his Father. What an extraordinary mercy that he has given to us. To me to live is Christ. I ask you tonight. For you. To live. Is. What must you with full integrity fill in the blank with? For whom? For what? There is a sense in which every one of us here, myself included tonight needs to learn profoundly and afresh that for us to truly live is Christ. And when we are living for anything other than or anyone other than Christ, we are setting ourselves up for a life of loss, not gain. I want you to notice the second part of Paul's radical declaration. It is delicious, dear ones. Look at it with me. For me to live, Christ. To die, gain. Word of personal testimony. My mother was among the most influential people in my life in terms of my walk with the Lord. I was converted in high school or converted as a freshman in college. She sent me off to college by giving me a Bible and a cross. And she said, son, she knew I wasn't a believer. She said, son, you're going to run into all kinds of things at college that you're not going to have the answers for. And my prayer for you is that you will turn here before you turn anywhere else. It was a week to the day after that conversation that I was converted. But it was some... 30 years later that my mother in advanced stages of cancer called me on the phone one morning and said, son, the doctors have said I will not live. I want you to teach me how to die well. Those were simultaneously the most glorious and yet the hardest words I had ever heard out of a human being's mouth. Son, teach me how to die well. 
You see, the answer to dying well is simply that for you to live is Christ. And that's what we studied for the next year together until her death, what it meant to live for Christ in every condition of life. You see, the best life lived is a life lived with a true sense of what our death means. Paul is demanding here in this personal testimony that we rediscover the full dimensions of our redemption. That there is a promise coming, that there is a certainty coming that invades this life now to live Christ. Therefore, death Scripture sees the believer's death as ushering in the greatest of goods over any good that we enjoy now. How many of you have been on a camping trip and you've had to read by candlelight or read by the light of a flashlight when the flashlight's dying? It's great to read by candlelight or by flashlight, but it's nothing at all like reading by the light of day, isn't it? One is dim, the other is extraordinarily bright. Dear ones, what Paul is saying here is that in this life, the best life lived to Christ is like candlelight compared to the glory of our full redemption. That's how much death is gained. One one author wrote, he's a Puritan author, life and death to us look like two hardships of which we do not know which is the less. But for the apostle, death and life both look to him like two immense blessings of which he knows not which is the better. On either side, life and death, Christ is all things to him. Well, I want to close tonight by asking, how is death gained to us? There are only two that we have the time to look at tonight. And the first is that we need to learn to be able to say with Augustine, our church father of old, that death brings us to a place, listen carefully, where we will only be able not to sin. Let me say it again. Only able not to sin. If you're a believer here tonight, and most likely you are are, a Friday evening Bible conference. But as believers, do we not know by our own experience how deeply we grieve even our own souls, let alone God, by our motives? choices, by our thoughts, by the lusts, the inordinate desires to which we give ourselves regularly. You see, Paul is saying that we're going to enter a life where there is utter and absolute complete freedom from evil and wickedness. 
Don't we as believers long for the day when we can no longer grieve the heart of God? When was the last time that that besetting sin pattern in your life occurred? And it may have been today. And you wandered and drifted as it were from the Lord because you said, how in the world could I do that again? That's it, dear ones. The day is coming when you will only be able not to sin. How glorious is this redemption that Christ has bought us. Death will finally bring freedom from fear and worry and unholy passions from giving and receiving pain one to another from marring the image of God all of the pain and all of the darkness and the anguish that our hearts produce is going to be eradicated listen to the wonderful words from our larger catechism our Presbyterian Church in America uses the larger and shorter catechisms as part of our theological documents listen to the 90th question What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? Answer. At the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up to Christ shall be set at his right hand and there openly acknowledged and acquitted. If that weren't enough, caught up to be with our Lord, openly acquitted before all of heaven. And they shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and in soul, in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels. That's all well and good, but listen to the end of the answer. But especially in the immediate vision of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. Believer, you as I have, have longed that the day would come when you would no longer be the center of your world, but God would infinitely and perfectly be the center of your world. That is glory. You will be forever and finally removed from the center of the world and God will be graciously and may I say it deliciously the center of your life. It is a remarkable gift that God gives to us that all evil will be taken away. We shall only be able not to sin. But there's a second way in which death is gained for us. And it is that we're going to enter the perfect presence of God and we are going to be received in an unfathomable love, never to lose that intimacy with God again. Isn't it true? Isn't it true of every one of us in this room that our intimacy with the Lord, our sense of it, is often like the roller coaster at the amusement park. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, and sometimes it's simply offline and altogether broken. The day is coming, dear ones, 
when you will fully know in an unfettered way the love of God. Is there a human being in your life who has loved you with what you can say is the greatest approximation of unconditional love that that you can recall? That is but the dimmest reflection of what it will be to be in the presence of God unfettered and full love. Every longing of our heart here and now to see the living God, to feel his presence, to be embraced by his unalterable forgiveness, to embrace his love, to be swallowed up by the desire of another. That's going to be fulfilled. Apostle John puts it this way in his epistle. How great is the love the Father has sort of given to us that we should be called the sons of God. Correct me. How great the love that has been lavished upon us. Think back to courtship. If a man is going to court a woman and he's going to court her well, he lavishes, doesn't he? God is courting you in Christ and he is lavishing you in Christ. And the day is coming when that union and that wedding and all of its glories will be complete. Think with me of a magnet. I read of this the other day in something I was reading and it struck me. Think of the beauty of a magnet. Now you and I, we look at things in the world differently than a magnet does. You and I, we look at diamonds and we say, boy, those are precious. We look at pearls and those are expensive and they they make beautiful a woman's neck. Diamonds and, and magnets, gold, things prized for their beauty and their wealth. But isn't it interesting that a magnet is not attracted to any of those things? But what is a magnet attracted to? Simple old iron ore. Not very valuable. Dug out of the ground with all kinds of impurities. But magnets are attracted to iron ore. The broken, the dirty, the busted those needing profoundly to be refined. The gospel is like that. The love of God is like that. The divine magnet of grace is drawn to the unworthy. And yet so often we think, only will I have the love of God when I make myself worthy. The magnet of God's love comes to the unworthy not to the diamond not to the pearl not to the gold but to the iron ore one day love is going to be known and given completely unable to be lost or diminished dear ones I remind you as Paul does tonight in the scriptures that this comes by
so tonight, I ask you in the language of my mother, would you die well? The simplicity of dying well is to know how to live well. To live well is Christ. Then death is gain. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great English pastor from London of the last century, I close with this, put it this way. The thing that Paul is really saying is that he is in love with Christ. And as is always true of love, that love dominates his life and controls it. When I met my wife, Jeannie, and we started courting one another, we made every excuse to be together. We lived 50 miles apart. We made every excuse. This was (laughs) dating myself. This was long before the days of cell phones. My son now talks to his girlfriend on an iPhone with, they call it FaceTime now. They just watch each other over video on the phone. (laughs) It's remarkable. Jeannie and I had to call each other after 11 when the rates went down. (laughs) But rarely a night passed when the phone didn't ring on one end or the other at 11.01. We spent every ounce of time we could together because we were in love and we were courting one another. Tonight, dear ones, I leave you with this. Paul says to me, to live is Christ because he courts me and he loves me and therefore to die is gain. Father, what a mercy it is. A mercy to have the language of the unerring word of God before us. This, perhaps the most succinct and powerful statement of what it means to be a believer anywhere. But Father, we give to you tonight our hearts. We know that we cannot make this happen. We must be taken by love. We must be captured by love. We would be restored by the power of your love. More and more we pray, make it true, that for the brothers and sisters in this room, in this North Point Presbyterian Church, for them, to live Christ death nothing but gain would you do that for the honor of Christ we pray Amen Thank you so much